0: Hi, hello. I'm your host, Chloe. Today, I will be talking about Catching Fire, written by Suzanne Collins. As always, the full-length episodes such as this one include spoilers. If you would like to listen to a spoiler-free mini-episode on this book, simply click episode 6A, Catching Fire. Usually, in a full-length episode, I try to cover more than three full segments. This episode, however, is going to be a bit different. Almost all of what I want to discuss can be split evenly into two segments. So I'm going to do something a little unprecedented. This episode will feature the two most extensive topics, and I will release a third bonus episode to tie up the loose ends I couldn't quite cover in this one. I love this book too much to leave out any of the gory details. In this episode, I will be discussing the rise of a revolution and Katniss and Peeta's relationship. Let's talk about lit. Revolutions do not happen overnight. They take time, often years of oppression and unchecked injustices. I think the citizens of Panem have waited long enough. In order to track the rise of this revolution, let's construct a basic timeline of pivotal events and subtle moments. For the sake of using information that we only have up to the end of this book, I'm going to avoid talking about any of the reveals that are in Mockingjay until the next episode. From the context that we are given in Ballad, along with the first book in this trilogy, we know that the structure of Penem has existed for a very long time. Penem replaced the continental United States after a non-specified collapse. Thirteen districts were created as hubs for production and were overseen by a capital. At some point, over a decade before Ballad begins, the districts rebelled against the capital. They surrounded the capital and attempted to starve it into submission by cutting off all imports and bombing the city relentlessly. The capital was able to regain the upper hand, obliterating the 13th district completely. The war ended with the bitter defeat of the districts. The capital decided that, as punishment, each district would pay reparations for the war by sacrificing two children every year in a pageant known as the Hunger Games. The founding of the Hunger Games ushered in a new era of Panem. The districts now balanced a seething hatred for the capital with a bone-deep terror of further retaliation. They are forced to sacrifice their children, watching them suffer and die in a broadcast made for the entire nation. The culture of the games gradually changed over time, offering tributes more luxury before they entered the arena, and rewards to the victor and their district following the games. This is little comfort in the face of increased betting, preserving of the arenas for resort stays, and the daily brutality of forced labor and impoverished living conditions. As these conditions worsen, the oppressed desperately wait for a sign. For an opportunity. The 74th annual Hunger Games brought the answer to their hopeful call. The nation is gripped by Katniss Everdeen and her handful of nightlock. The game makers declared only one victor could be crowned, as it had been for the past 73 years. Katniss didn't like those odds and decided that the Capitol would have no victor if she and Peeta could not both live. If a 16-year-old girl from the smallest district could change the rules of the games and walk away unscathed, what stops someone else from doing the same? What stops the people from challenging the entire system, the very capital itself? This spark has swept through Panem, and President Snow plans to extinguish it no matter the cost. He visits Katniss on page 17, informing her that she has failed in convincing the nation that her act was one born out of love and not rebellion. This failure has given people the idea that they can challenge the capital, which could lead to a rebellion. A rebellion that would dismantle the government, destroy the country, and take the lives of countless people. On page 22, Katniss processes this, quote, I'm taken aback by the directness and even the sincerity of his speech. As if his primary concern is the welfare of the citizens of Panem when nothing could be further from the truth. I don't know how I dare to say the next words, but I do. It must be very fragile if a handful of berries can bring it down. There's a long pause while he examines me. Then he simply says, It is fragile but not in the way that you suppose. The conversation is briefly interrupted by Katniss's mother, who brings them some tea and cookies. Katniss attempts to defend herself by saying, quote, I didn't mean to start any uprisings. Snow responds, I believe you. It doesn't matter. He then gives her a mission. Convince all of Panem that you and Peta are hopelessly in love with each other by the end of the victory tour. When she asks how she will know if her attempt was successful or not, he tells her that he himself should be convinced. If she fails, the consequences will mean death to those she loves. She promises that she will try her very best. The victory tour, despite the best efforts of Katniss, Peta, and Haymitch, cannot stop what has already been set in motion. The first stop in District 11 reveals the swift and unforgiving consequences of acts of rebellion. Before the lovers leave the stage on page 60, Katniss is compelled to give an impromptu speech. Quote, My allotted time for speaking has come and gone, but I must say something. I owe too much. And even if I had pledged all my winnings to the families, it would not excuse my silence today. Wait, please. I don't know how to start, but once I do, the words rush from my lips as if they've been forming in the back of my mind for a long time. She proceeds to thank Thresh and Ruse families, concluding with thanks for the district for sending her bread. Quote, I stand there, feeling broken and small- Thousands of eyes trained on me. There's a long pause. Then, from somewhere in the crowd, someone whistles Rue's four-note mockingjay tune. The one that signaled the end of the workday in the orchards. The one that meant safety in the arena. By the end of the tune, I have found the whistler, a wizened old man in a faded red shirt and overalls. His eyes meet mine. What happens next is not an accident. It is too well executed to be spontaneous because it happens in complete unison. Every person in the crowd presses the three middle fingers of their left hand against their lips and extends them to me. It's our sign from District 12. The last goodbye I gave Rue in the arena. Katniss quickly realizes what she has done. Once again, a moment of sincerity has sparked a chain reaction of rebellion. Peacekeepers seek out the old man, drag him up the steps, and shoot him in the head. As the tour presses on, Katniss catches glimpses of turmoil in several other districts. Quote, Even without our personal speeches to trigger dissent, needless to say, the ones we gave in District 11 were edited out before the event was broadcast, you can feel something in the air. The rolling boil of a pot about to run over. Not everywhere. Some crowds have the weary cattle feel that I know District 12 usually projects at the victor's ceremonies. But in others, particularly 8, 4, and 3, there is genuine elation in the faces of the people at the sight of us, and under the elation, fury. When they chant my name, it is more of a cry for vengeance than a cheer. When the peacekeepers move into quiet and unruly crowd, it presses back instead of retreating. And I know that there's nothing I could ever do to change this. No show of love, however believable, will turn this tide. Pages 71 and 72. Katniss has realized that, while she may have begun this series of events in terms of the recent uprisings, she cannot stop it. She was never able to stop it, regardless of Snow's attempts to make her believe so. Peter realizes this as well, and on page 81, whispers, quote, Maybe we were wrong, Katniss. About what, I ask? About trying to subdue things in the districts. He makes an interesting point. They can't stop the revolution, but should they want to? Or should they be cheering it on? Iconography and symbolism play an important role in revolutions. Katniss's Mockingjay pin is now a fashion symbol in the capital, as we learn on page 78. It is loved and used innocently by those who believe that she acted out of love. Despite its intention, the symbol's presence is not lost to the game makers and President Snow. The Capitol isn't the only place that Mockingjay symbols are displayed, as we soon learn. We catch the first glimpse of an official uprising on page 88, as Katniss views a private broadcast in the mayor's office. Quote, An announcer I've never seen before appears. It's a woman with graying hair and a hoarse, authoritative voice. She warns that conditions are worsening and a level 3 alert has been called. Additional forces are being sent into District 8, and all textile production has stopped. They cut away from the woman to the main square in District 8. I recognize it because I was there only last week. There are still banners with my face waving from the rooftops. Below them, there's a mob scene. The square's packed with screaming people, their faces hidden with rags and homemade masks, throwing bricks buildings burn. Peacekeepers shoot into the crowd, killing at random. I've never seen anything like it, but I can only be witnessing one thing. This is what President Snow calls an uprising. This uprising is reminiscent of some of the scenes we have seen earlier this year on our own streets. It is a cathartic release of years worth of turmoil, oppression, anger, and sadness. It is an expression of their refusal to accept the circumstances any longer. As this domino falls, it brings a new wave of violence and brutality. Upon returning home from the Victory Tour, our trio discovers that some adjustments have been made to District 12. Gail is whipped unconscious as punishment for illegally hunting on page 105. This leads to Katniss's decision to fully commit to being a rebel. She considers the implications of this decision on page 122, quote, Less than a day ago, I was prepared to head into the wilderness with my loved ones in midwinter, with the very real possibility of the capital pursuing us, a precarious venture at best. But now I am committing to something even more risky. Fighting the capital assures their swift retaliation, I must accept that at any moment I can be arrested. There will be a knock on the door, like the one last night, a band of peacekeepers to haul me away. There might be torture, mutilation, a bullet through my skull in the town square if I'm fortunate enough to go that quickly. The capital has no end of creative ways to kill people. I imagine these things and I'm terrified, but let's face it, They've been lurking in the back of my brain, anyway." This shift in mood is sudden and the atmosphere grows somber. These consequences are not ones that only Katniss must face, they are consequences that all Rebels must face. She wavers for a moment, considering the possibility that her loved ones will face these consequences for her rebellious actions. As quickly as her worry appears, it is replaced with anger and determination. They have already hurt the people she loves. They have already hurt the innocent. Her resolve hardens as she adopts her new role. It is time to make the capital pay. More upgrades and adjustments are made to District 12 in an attempt to deter any rebellious activity. Quote, "The square has been transformed. A huge banner with the seal of Panem hangs off the roof of the Justice Building." Peacekeepers in pristine white uniforms march on the cleanly swept cobblestones. Along the rooftops, more of them occupy nets of machine guns. Most unnerving is a line of new constructions, an official whipping post, several stockades, and a gallows, set up in the center of the square. The Capitol has implemented these new measures in an effort to intimidate the citizens of the district. They have placed all of this in the center of the square as a way to display the consequences that await anyone who lifts a finger in dissent. Each stage of punitive action is present. Whipping post for smaller violations, a makeshift jail for larger violations and holding, and a means of execution for the worst offenders. The hob, the black market, was set ablaze and destroyed completely. This removes an option for more affordable and otherwise inaccessible items, ensuring that the peacekeepers are aware of any and all transactions, and what the citizens can get their hands on. On pages 131 to 132, we see measures previously mentioned expanded upon and used in full action. Quote, The mines stay shut for two weeks, and by the time they reopen, half of District 12 is starving. The number of kids signing up for Tesserae soars, but they often don't receive the grain. Food shortages begin, and even those with money come away from stores empty-handed. When the mines reopen, wages are cut, hours extended, miners sent into blatantly dangerous work sites. The eagerly awaited food promised for parcel day arrives spoiled and defiled by rodents. The installations in the square see plenty of action as people are dragged in and punished for offenses so long overlooked we've forgotten they're illegal. What better method to deter rebellion than beat the opposition down before they can even organize and launch their offensive? To starve them and beat them and make their lives much more miserable and a show of your extensive power. The further you push their face into the dirt, the more difficult it will be for them to rise. On page 139, we are introduced to two refugees from District 8, Bonnie and Twill. They share the firsthand account of the uprisings in District 8 on pages 144 through 146. An organized group of rebels planned to overtake the Justice Building, the Peacekeeper's headquarters, and the communication center, as well as the railroad, granary, the power station, and the armory. They were initially successful, securing three of these locations. They knew they had to inform the other districts that their offensive was successful and that they should join the fight. Unfortunately, the capital sent in reinforcements by the thousands. Hovercrafts bombed the rebel held locations until nothing but rubble remained. There was a two week lockdown that cut off access to food and coal, also forbidding people from leaving their homes. The only broadcasts that were played were the public executions of the rebels who were caught. The lockdown ended and all production resumed. A bomb blew up the factory that Bonnie and Twill worked in, killing every single person inside. They believed that it was done to kill any of the remaining rebels since the plan was developed within the workers' ranks. Their account is just one example of the swift retaliation that Katniss knew would result from rebellious actions. When faced with opposition, the Capitol would rather murder than show mercy. It is easier to eradicate all opposition than allow any to remain and possibly take action again. Something they can't erase, though... Is the theory that District 13 is alive and well, its mere existence an act of rebellion? Perhaps the most subtle mention of rebellion is the exchange between Katniss and her prep team as they prepare her for the wedding dress photo shoot on page 165. Quote The team, as usual, is full of news, which I usually do my best to tune out. But then Octavia makes a comment that catches my attention. It's a passing remark, really, about how she couldn't get shrimp for a party. But it tugs at me. Why couldn't you get shrimp? Is it out of season? I ask. Oh, Katniss, we haven't been able to get any seafood for weeks, says Octavia. You know, because the weather's been so bad in District 4. My mind starts buzzing. No seafood for weeks from District 4. The barely concealed rage in the crowd during the victory tour, and suddenly I am absolutely sure that District 4 has revolted. She continues to casually question the prep team and learns that electronics from District 3 and fabrics from District 8 have become commodities. On page 168, Hamish adds rumors of uprisings in Districts 7 and 11. That means that five of the 12 districts are actively rebelling against the Capitol. We can assume that production in those districts has been halted in response to the uprisings, like in District 8. How long can the Capitol force the districts to go into lockdown when they rely completely on each of their contributions? All of these aforementioned adjustments had been made on the local level, focusing on individual districts. With the insurgence of rebellious activity, the Capitol needed to take national action to send a message to each and every citizen. With the announcement of the third quarter quell on page 172, Snow delivers a debilitating blow. Quote, On the 75th anniversary, as a reminder to the rebels that even the strongest among them cannot overcome the power of the capital, the male and female tributes will be reaped from their existing pool of victors. The rebels view Katniss as the girl who defeated the capital, who bent its will to her own. The other victors are symbols of strength because they have defied the poor odds that were given to them. Together, unified, they are a selective group of people from the districts that have two distinct advantages. First, each of them has visited the other 11 districts and the capital on a somewhat annual basis. Second, they have faced the horrors of the game makers firsthand and survived. They have survived their own games as well as, presumably, mentored the tributes that have succeeded them. Oh, you know, and we can't forget the consuming hatred that the majority of the victors feel for the capital, their desire for revenge. When the capital considers all of this, it knows that the victors are the ones to make an example out of, to show that even those who are winners have poor odds. If the victors can't stand against the capital and survive, how does anyone else stand a chance? We are given a glimpse into a capital citizen's perspective on rebellion when Peter reveals what he did during his individual training session. Effie begins on page two hundred and forty What did you paint, Peter? She looks a little misty. Was it a picture of Katniss? Why would he paint a picture of me, Effie? I ask, somehow annoyed. To show he's going to do everything he can to defend you. That's what everyone in the capital's expecting, anyway. Didn't he volunteer to go in with you? Effie says, as if it's the most obvious thing in the world. Actually, I painted a picture of Rue, Peta says. How she looked after Katniss had covered her in flowers. There's a long pause at the table while everyone absorbs this. And what exactly were you trying to accomplish? Haymitch asks in a very measured voice. I'm not sure. I just wanted to hold them accountable, if only for a moment, says Pita, for killing that little girl. This is dreadful. Effie sounds like she's about to cry. That sort of thinking. It's forbidden, Pita. Absolutely. You'll only bring down more trouble on yourself and Katniss. Is Effie insinuating that the capital citizens are more than aware of the unethical and downright despicable circumstances of the games? That they are silent not out of ignorance, but out of fear? That they are told it is forbidden to view the games as nothing but an event to celebrate? Perhaps... They are not quite as dense and self-absorbed as we initially thought. Katniss knows that she is not the only one whose hope has dwindled since the announcement of the quell. Bolstered by PETA's honesty about their odds, she resolves herself to die fighting. Quote, Yes, everyone in the districts will be watching me to see how I handle this death sentence, this final act of President Snow's dominance. They will be looking for some sign that their battles have not been in vain. If I can make it clear that I'm still defying the capital right up to the end, the capital will have killed me, but not my spirit. What better way to give hope to the rebels? She continues on the next page, page 244, by deciding her role as a martyr will best serve the rebellion. Hida, the gentle soul who has a way with words, could rally the rebels. He could use Katniss's tragic death as a battle cry to propel the rebel wave forward into the capital. He could lead them to victory with as few casualties as he can manage. This makes me wonder, what is more powerful, a rebel or a martyr? Could a dead idol drive a rebellion further than a living leader? The interviews start off strong with Katniss and Peeta being forced to wear the wedding dress and tuxedo that will never see their wedding day. The other victors are disgusted, even angry with this wardrobe choice. Johanna adjusts Katniss's necklace, saying, quote, make him pay for it. She doesn't have to be in the arena for an opportunity to present itself. Quote, This is the first time I realize the depth of betrayal felt among the victors and the rage that accompanies it. But they are so smart, so wonderfully smart about how they play it, because it all comes back to reflect on the government and President Snow. Page 250. The victors will do whatever they can to stop the games, or bring as many people down with them as they possibly can. Katniss uses the momentum created by the previous victors to further the effort to end the games. She speaks of how sorry she is that no one from the Capitol will be able to attend her wedding, because there will be no wedding. She concludes her statement with her signature twirl, and her wedding dress transforms her into a mockingjay into the very symbol of the rebellion. Cinna has given Katniss the opportunity to take Snow's image of her and make it into who she really is, into what she really is. Peeta, the final interviewee, sows absolute chaos. He is an icon. He begins by revealing to the audience that he and Katniss are already married, shocking even Caesar with what he says next on page 256. I'll let him tell you. Quote, I wish we had waited until the whole thing was done officially. This takes even Caesar aback. Surely even a brief time is better than no time. Maybe I'd think that too, Caesar, says Peeta bitterly, if it weren't for the baby. The effect is immediate. Quote, As the bomb explodes, it sends accusations of injustice and barbarism and cruelty flying out in every direction. Even the most capital-loving, games-hungry, bloodthirsty person out there can't ignore, at least for a moment, how horrific the whole thing is. This move was absolutely brilliant. But I'm also kind of surprised that it worked. If the romanticized slaughter of children every year doesn't make the capital citizens bat an eye, why does an unborn child, well, embryo or fetus depending on the stage of development and pregnancy, send them over the edge? It's similar to the people who want to outlaw abortion but are okay with keeping migrant children in literal cages and- Oh. I see okay the chaos in the crowd gives the victors an opportunity to do something unprecedented they all rise hands joined one powerful line standing in defiance of the capital quote you can see the realization of this as the screens begin to pop into blackness it's too late though in the confusion they didn't cut us off in time everyone has seen the victors, already a symbol of hope and strength, have shown all of Panem that they are a united front. They are one, standing against the capital. On page 260, Hamish gives his last piece of advice to the star-crossed lovers. Quote, You just remember who the enemy is. This resurfaces from the waves of the arena in the days to come. Who is the enemy? Is it the victors that she faces? Is it Finnick or Johanna? Is it the people in the capital, the peacekeepers? No. The enemy is President Snow. The full reveal of the rebel plan to intervene in the games begins on page 385. It'll just be easier if I read it straight out. Quote, There was a plan to break us out of the arena from the moment the quell was announced. The victor tributes of 3, 4, 6, 7, 8, and 11 had varying degrees of knowledge about it. Plutarch Heavensby has been, for several years, part of an undercover group aiming to overthrow the capital. He made sure the wire was among the weapons. BT was in charge of blowing a hole in the force field. The bread re- we received in the arena was code for the time of the rescue. The district where the bread originated indicated the day, 3. The number of rolls the hour, 24. The hovercraft belongs to District 13. Bonnie and Twill, the women I met in the woods from District 8, were right about its existence and its defense capabilities. We are currently on a very roundabout journey to District 13. Meanwhile, most of the districts in Panem are in full-scale rebellion. Haymitch stops to see if I am following, or maybe he is done for the moment. It's an awful lot to take in, this elaborate plan in which I was a piece, just as I was meant to be a piece in the Hunger Games, used without consent, without knowledge. At least in the Hunger Games, I knew I was being played. Let's take a second to digest this before I move on. The Rebels, now officially including a number of victors and the new head game maker, devised this plan to rescue Katniss and the others from the arena before they even stepped foot into it. The plan relied on BT being in the arena and having access to the wire. We know Plutarch supplied the wire, but was BT being chosen rigged? Did he volunteer as tribute or did they leave it up to chance? This makes me wonder about the other victors that were chosen. Was any of it up to chance? If the rebels could influence some of the results, couldn't they have influenced them all, with the exception of only one victor to choose from? We now know that District 13 is alive and well, presumably underground. How have they survived this long? Why have they, the district with the most powerful weapons and panem, not offered any aid up to this point. At least they have stepped forward to be an active participant in the revolution. They provided the hovercraft that Plutarth and Hamich used to rescue Katniss, Finnick, and BT. As the explanation continues on the next page, Katniss asks why she wasn't in on the plan. Quote, Neither you nor PETA were told. We couldn't risk it, says Plutarth. I was even worried you might mention my indiscretion with the watch during the games. He pulls out his pocket watch and runs his thumb across the crystal, lighting up the Mockingjay. Of course, when I showed you this, I was merely tipping you off about the arena. As a mentor, I thought it might be a first step toward gaining your trust. I never dreamed you'd be a tribute again. I still don't understand why Peta and I weren't let in on the plan, I say. Because once the force field blew... You'd be the first ones they'd try to capture, and the less you know, the better, says Hamage The first ones? Why? I say, trying to hang on to the train of thought. For the same reason the rest of us agreed to die to keep you alive, says Finnick. Let's take another breather. So Katniss and Peeta were not told about the plan to break them out and take them to District 13. I'm going to be honest here and say something controversial. I think that this was more of a plot convenience than anything else. If Katniss had known the plan, the readers would have too, and that would have taken a lot of the fun out of it. I think that, logistically speaking, this wasn't the best decision on the Rebels' part. We all know by now Katniss is an impulsive, sometimes fickle person. Haymitch knew that she had pledged to sacrifice herself to keep Peeta alive, Because of this, she considered killing most, if not all, of the other victors in the arena, including their allies. If not killing them, abandoning them. If they would have been in on the plan, at least the, hey, these are truly allies that are trying to keep you alive so we can break you out or stop the games, she would have been much more rational and less prone to murder, However, I do understand that Katniss isn't always reliable when it comes to being inconspicuous, so I can see why they wouldn't want her to know everything. Unfortunately for the other rebel victors, they were not afforded the same protection of ignorance. We'll see how this affected them in the next book. This passage also reveals that the head game maker did not know that the quell would involve reaping victors, which further supports the theory that Snow switched the envelopes or fabricated the contents of the 75th one entirely. Finnick tells her that they all agreed to sacrifice themselves to save Katniss and Peeta, which explains all of the actions that the others took to keep Peeta alive. Oh, Peeta. Quote, Peeta, I whisper, my heart sinking. The others kept PETA alive because if he died, we knew there'd be no keeping you in an alliance, says Hamich. and we couldn't risk leaving you unprotected. His words are matter-of-fact, his expression unchanged, but he can't hide the tinge of gray that colors his face. Where is PETA? I hiss at him. He was picked up by the capital along with Johanna and Inobaria, says Hamich and he finally has the decency to drop his gaze. The gentle Pita once again exploited and used for his genuine love. Now he is in the hands of Snow, poised as one of the most, if not the most, powerful weapons to use against Katniss. The life of a rebel is not easy, especially when there are people you love, people you can lose. People like those in District 12, which was bombed to oblivion after the force field was destroyed, Gale, who makes an appearance in the last two pages of the book, reveals, her mother and Prim are safe, but many were not as lucky. This declaration of war will only fuel her flames. Let's see, where did I leave off with Katniss and Peeta's relationship? Ah, yes. He loves her, she doesn't love him, oh, no, no, she does love him, no, no, wait, she doesn't love him, inspirational quote about female empowerment, oh, yeah, that's right. The duo returned home to District 12 with perhaps more distance than ever before between them. Katniss was lost in confusion and the recent trauma, with one of the only things that she was certain of being that she is not ready to make a choice about romance. Peeta was lost in heartbreak at the realization that his one true love had not been entirely genuine with her affection. Did time strain their relationship even more? Let's find out. When this book begins, Katniss is out in the woods hunting alone. She stops by Gail's house to drop some spoils off to Hazel and recaps the complicated relationships that she shares with Gail and Peta. Quote, I can't stop the redness that floods my cheeks. Hardly anybody knows me better than Hazel knows the bond I share with Gail. I'm sure plenty of people assumed that we'd eventually get married, even if I never gave it any thought, but that was before the games. Before my fellow tribute, Peta Malark announced he was madly in love with me. Our romance became a key strategy for our survival in the arena. Only it wasn't just a strategy for Peta. I'm not sure what it was for me. But I know now it was nothing but painful for Gail. My chest tightens as I think about how, on the victory tour, Peta and I will have to present ourselves as lovers again. This brings us back to where I left off in the previous episode. Katniss has never had the time to think about romantic relationships and love, let alone be in a relationship or in love. Now that she has survived the games and is back home, she is faced with two boys who both have feelings for her to some extent. Her plate is spilling over with the amount of stuff that she has piled onto it. After visiting Hazel, she goes to wake Hamage up in anticipation of the camera crew. She hears a familiar voice on page 14, quote, Ask me what? Just the sound of his voice twists my stomach into a knot of unpleasant emotions like guilt, sadness, and fear. and longing. I might as well admit there's some of that too, only it has too much competition to ever win out. There are still many emotions and events that she has yet to process. They have both taken to generally ignoring the others so that they can avoid addressing their feelings and what they have been through. She does recognize that there is a longing for Peta, that there is something there, but that it isn't overwhelming enough to beat out everything else that is competing for her attention. I think this is both realistic and appropriate. Once again, we're talking about a 16-going-on 17-year-old girl. No, not you, Liesel. I don't expect her to make a decision when she has yet to process most of what is in her head. Of course, Panem has other plans for the girl on fire. President Snow is waiting for her at home, there to give her an ultimatum. Convince me that you love PETA or lose everything you love. As he grills her about her love triangle, she struggles to answer his questions. Quote, I don't know. I don't... My revulsion at this conversation, at discussing my feelings for two of the people I care most about with President Snow, chokes me off. Page 24. Later, on page 27, she recounts the time that Gail kissed her after she returned home. Quote, I tried to decide how I felt about the kiss, if I had liked it or resented it, but all I really remembered was the pressure of Gail's lips and the scent of the oranges that still lingered on his skin. It was pointless comparing it with the many kisses I'd exchanged with Peta. I still hadn't figured out if any of those counted. These two passages reinforce my point. She hasn't decided what she wants. She can't yet. The pressure of Panem and the president's threat press down on her. As the group departs on the victory tour, Haymitch forces her to come to grips with the reality that she may no longer have a choice. Quote, If you could just help me get through this trip, I begin. No, Katniss, it's not just this trip, he says. What do you mean? I say. Even if we pull it off, they'll be back in another few months to take us all to the games. You and Peeta, you'll be mentors now, every year from here on out. And every year, they'll revisit the romance and broadcast the details of your private life. And you'll never, ever be able to do anything but live happily ever after with that boy. The full impact of what he's saying hits me. I will never have a life with Gale, even if I want to. I will never be allowed to live alone. I will have to be forever in love with Pita. The Capital will insist on it. I'll have a few years, maybe, because I'm still only sixteen, to stay with my mother and Prim, and then… and then… Do you understand what I mean? He presses me. I nod. He means there's only one future. If I want to keep those I love alive and stay alive myself, I'll have to marry Pita. While this would be the path of least resistance, and she would no longer have to decide herself, no one wants this. Hamage captures this sentiment on page 73, following Pita's public proposal. Quote, I thought he wanted it anyway, I say. Not like this. Haymitch says. He wanted it to be real. How Katniss and Peeta feel about each other is no longer relevant. They won't be able to come into mutual love if that's what they wanted, just like they won't be able to remain only friends if that's what they wanted. Their choice, their love, has been stolen from them. They are still being used as pieces in someone else's game. The present futility of their situation leads them to make amends with one another on the victory tour. On page 51, Peter apologizes for how he has acted since they returned home. He admits that he was jealous of Gail and that, quote, It wasn't fair to hold you to anything that happened in the games. I'm sorry. Katniss is surprised and thinks to herself, quote, It's true that Peter froze me out after I confessed that my love for him during the games was something of an act, but I don't hold that against him. In the arena, I'd played that romance angle for all it was worth. There had been times when I didn't honestly know how I felt about him. I still don't, really. She reciprocates his apology, to which he tells her that she has no reason to be sorry. They agree to be friends, realizing that they know very little about each other. They settle on sharing their favorite colors in a very simple and touching moment. The honesty in this exchange, both spoken and unspoken, gives us insight into their relationship. Peeta felt insecure, made even worse when Katniss admitted that she wasn't completely genuine. He feels guilty for holding her feelings, whatever they were, against her, He shows maturity and recognizes that an apology could help mend their relationship. He doesn't want to lose the girl on fire. Katniss exhibits some emotional maturation as she recognizes that her actions hurt Peeta even though she didn't intend them to. She is in a similar situation to him as she also has trouble separating what was real from what was for the cameras. She acknowledges the complexity of their situation and feels that an apology from her will complete the reparations. She doesn't want to lose the boy with the bread. Now that they have addressed the elephant in the room and moved forward, they realize that for a pair of lovers, they know almost nothing about each other that isn't pertinent to their survival. This was a revelation that hurt my heart. You have these two teenagers who have been thrust into a barbaric and political game, Forcing them to rely on each other for survival, they have formed a bond through the most basic, innate human instinct. They haven't had enough time to even properly introduce themselves or learn something as basic as the other's favorite color. This entire situation is so wrong. They should have the opportunity to live as normal teenagers, to grow, to know and love each other if that's what they choose. To experience something real. If they would have been given that chance, what choice would they have made? I don't know. We aren't here to discuss the what-ifs, though. We're here to discuss what is. And what is is a mounting revolution that they are at the forefront of. Despite their deliberate efforts to squash the uprisings by pretending to fall further in love, there are genuine moments shared between them. One is the kiss they share on page 59 following PETA's donation of a month's winnings to the families of Rue and Thresh. Quote I look at PETA and he gives me a sad smile. I hear Hamish's voice. You could do a lot worse. At this moment, it's impossible to imagine how I could do any better. The gift, it is perfect so when I rise up on tiptoe to kiss him, it doesn't feel forced at all. Page 59. Another follows a night they spent sleeping in her bed on the train. They discuss nightmares, and Katniss tells him he should wake her up when he has one. Quote, It's not necessary. My nightmares are usually about losing you, he says. I'm okay once I realize you're here. Ugh. Peter makes comments like this in such an offhand way, and it's like being hit in the gut. He's only answering my question honestly. He's not pressing me to reply in kind, to make any declaration of love. But I still feel awful, as if I've been using him in some terrible way. Have I? I don't know. I only know that for the first time, I feel immoral about him being here in my bed which is ironic since we're officially engaged now. "'Be worse when we're home and I'm sleeping alone again,' he says. Page 86. Peter lives so honestly in his love for Katniss. Since they have cleared the air between them, there is no longer any expectation that she will reciprocate. He is just open about how he feels. Now that there is no pressure between them— the pressure is being applied from the outside, she can begin to explore her own feelings. This Exploration, though, isn't limited explicitly to PETA. Its scope includes Gale. When she asks him to meet her at the lake, things take one unexpected turn after another. After revealing all that has happened in the past few weeks, she tells him that they should run away to the woods. He picks her up, laughing. Quote, We can do it. I know we can. Let's get out of here and never come back. You're sure, I say, because it's going to be hard with the kids and all. I don't want to get five miles into the woods and have you, I'm sure. I'm completely, entirely, 100% sure. He tilts his forehead down to rest against mine and pulls me closer. His skin, his whole being radiates heat from being so near the fire And I close my eyes, soaking in his warmth. I breathe in the smell of all those wintry days we shared before the games. I don't try to move away. Why should I, anyway? His voice drops to a whisper. I love you. Page 96. Her immediate response is not one to impress. She tells him that she knows. In an attempt to recover, she elaborates, quote, Gail, I can't think about anyone that way now. All I can think about every day, every waking minute since they drew Prim's name at the reaping, is how afraid I am. And there doesn't seem to be room for anything else. If we could get somewhere safe, maybe I could be different. I don't know. I can see him swallowing his disappointment. So we'll go. We'll find out. Page 97. Things take a second turn when she mentions taking Hamish and Pita along with them. The tone immediately shifts and Gale becomes belligerent. They argue until Katniss lets slip about the uprising in District 8. Gale resigns to stay in District 12 to incite rebellion and storms out. Directly following their meeting, Gail is apprehended for illegally hunting and whipped close to death. When the fear of losing him overcomes her, she has a realization. Quote, Gail is mine. I am his. Anything else is unthinkable. Why did it take him being whipped within an inch of his life to see it? Page 117. His close call with death, in addition to his insinuation that she is capital-made and therefore soiled, or should I say spoiled, convinces her that she should choose him. The blizzard gives her an opportunity to loll over this decision. A nightmare leaves her shaking on page 121. Quote, I wish that Peta were here to hold me, until I remember I'm not supposed to wish that anymore. I have chosen Gale and the rebellion, and a future with Peta is the capital's design, not mine. It is ironic that she does not realize the striking parallel between her relationship with Peta and her relationship with Gale. With Peta, there is pressure from the capital to be in love and get married and serve as model citizens. With Gale there's pressure from their past to be in love and get married because that's what everyone at home expected which even she acknowledges. She should be with Pita and stop the rebellion. She should be with Gale and join the rebellion. Katniss sees these as the only two paths in front of her and as of now the one with Gale and the rebellion is the one she wants to pursue. But this emotional high does not last long, and on page 125, she is back to questioning her feelings. Quote, Someone they love. The words numb my tongue as if it's been packed in snow coat. Of course I love Gail, but what kind of love does she mean? What do I mean when I say I love Gail? I don't know. I did kiss him last night, in a moment when my emotions were running so high, but I'm sure he doesn't remember it. Does he? I hope not. If he does, everything will just get more complicated and I really can't think about kissing when I've got a rebellion to incite. I give my head a little shake to clear it. Now even romance with Gail is separate from the rebellion. Things become even more complicated when thoughts of PETA come creeping back in. As it carries her up to bed on page 158 after her fall over the fence, a desire is pulled forward from the pain medication. Quote, He tucks me in and says goodnight, but I catch his hand and hold him there. A side effect of the sleep syrup is that it makes people less inhibited, like white liquor, and I know I have to control my tongue. But I don't want him to go. In fact, I want him to climb in with me, to be there when the nightmares hit tonight. For some reason that I can't quite form, I know I'm not allowed to ask that. He stays with her until she falls asleep and spends time with her over the course of the next few days as she heals. He illustrates the plans in her family's book as she supervises their accuracy. This is one of the few times they have done a normal activity together. As Peta puts it, it's nice for a change, Katniss replies. All plans are disrupted by the announcement of the Quell. Her thoughts of a life with Gale are immediately abandoned and her focus shifts to doing whatever it takes to keep Peta alive in the days ahead. Peta has the same idea as he goes to Haymitch directly after the Quell announcement to make a deal to secure his place so he can keep Katniss alive in the arena page 177. Quote, Peter's argument is that since I chose you, I now owe him anything he wants. And what he wants is the chance to go in again to protect you, says Hamish. I knew it. In this way, Peter's not hard to predict. While I was wallowing around on the floor of that cellar, thinking of only myself, he was here thinking only of me. Shame isn't a strong enough word for what I feel. You could live a hundred lifetimes and not deserve him, you know. Hamish says. Page 178. They come to an agreement by the next page that if Peta and Katniss are the two tributes in the arena, they will do whatever they can to keep him alive. The concept of debt is recurring throughout this book, especially in regard to the debt of sacrifice. How much is a life worth? How do you repay someone for saving your life, for sacrificing theirs? Katniss grapples with this as she maneuvers the pre-game's preparations and the alliances in the arena. Her resolve is hardened after the reaping, once their fates are sealed. Quote, Too heartsick to cry. All I want is to curl up on the bed and sleep until we arrive in the capital tomorrow morning. But I have a mission. No, it's more than a mission. It's my dying wish. Keep PETA alive. Page 189. While the pair has accepted their unlikely chance of survival, PETA urges Katniss to make the most of the days that they have left before they enter the arena. Quote, So, what should we do with our last few days? I just want to spend every possible minute of the rest of my life with you, PETA says page 244. They begin sleeping in Katniss's bed again and on the day before the interviews they are given a reprieve from coaching. With the free time given to them they escape to the roof of the training center to spend the day together alone. Quote, no one bothers us. By late afternoon I lie with my head on Peeta's lap making a crown of flowers while he fiddles with my hair claiming he's practicing his knots. After a while, his hands go still. What? I ask. I wish I could freeze this moment, right here, right now, and live in it forever. Usually this sort of comment, the kind that hints of his undying love for me, makes me feel guilty and awful. But I feel so warm and relaxed and beyond worrying about a future I'll never have. I just let the words slip out. Okay. I can hear the smile in his voice. Then you'll allow it? I'll allow it, I say. Page 245. Perhaps it is the fact that she does not expect to live longer than a few more days. Perhaps it is her becoming one with the girl she pretends to be for the capital. Perhaps it is her accepting that it is okay to be happy. To allow moments like this with Peta, where her walls are down and she can feel. Sometimes the proverbial floodgates open and you cannot stop the release of your emotions. Sometimes tragic events occur that force a reaction out of you without your permission. Like your partner striking a force field with a machete. Like his heart stopping. Quote, Around the time that I'm deciding it's too late, that Peter's dead, moved on, unreachable forever, he gives a small cough, and Finnick sits back. I leave my weapons in the dirt as I fling myself at him. Peter, I say softly. I brush the damp blonde strands of hair back from his forehead, find the pulse drumming against my fingers at his neck. His lashes flutter open and his eyes meet mine. Careful, he says weakly. There's a force field up ahead. I laugh, but there are tears running down my cheeks. Must be a lot stronger than the one on the training center roof, he says. I'm all right, though, just a little shaken. You were dead. Your heart stopped. I burst out before really considering if this is a good idea. I clap my hand over my mouth because I'm starting to make those awful choking sounds that happen when I sob. Well, it seems to be working now, he says. It's all right, Katniss. I nod my head, but the sounds aren't stopping. Katniss? Now Peta is worried about me, which adds to the insanity of it all. Page 282. Peta's heart wasn't the only one that stopped in this moment. I'm talking about me. My heart also stopped. Katniss was faced with a moment she has been doing everything in her power to avoid pita was dead not a i can't find him i know he's wounded maybe he's dead kind of dead but uh he just used a machete as a conductor with a force field and his heart stopped dead kind of dead it is one thing for her to be unable to imagine a future with Peta because she is dead but it is another thing for her to be unable to imagine a future with Peta because he is dead Because she is alone and a life with him is no longer a choice. This is a parallel to what happened with Gail. Gail almost died after he was whipped unconscious. This threw her into an emotional state where she realized that she didn't want to have a life where she was alive and he was dead. Where a life with him was no longer a choice. Her life has been consistently high stakes, literally life and death, that loving or not loving has been a matter of losing someone or loving them. She's not the only one stuck in this purgatory. PETA is there as well. On page 350, the duo shares an intimate scene on the beach. PETA acknowledges the elephant in the room, declaring that he knows they have both made deals with Hamish to save the other's life. Quote, I raise my head, meet Peter's eyes. Why are you bringing this up now? Because I don't want you forgetting how different our circumstances are. If you die and I live, there's no life for me at all back in District 12. You're my whole life, he says. I would never be happy again. I start to object, but he puts a finger to my lips. It's different for you. I'm not saying it wouldn't be hard, but there are other people who'd make your life worth living. He presents her with his token, a golden locket containing pictures of Prim, her mother, and Gale. This is his gift to her, not just a necklace, but her life, a life with her family and a future with Gale. He continues, quote, "No one really needs me," he says there's no self-pity in his voice. It's true, his family doesn't need him. They will mourn him, as will a handful of friends, but they will get on. Even Haymitch, with the help of a lot of white liquor, will get on. I realize only one person will be damaged beyond repair if Peta dies. Me. I do, I say. I need you. He looks upset, takes a deep breath as if to begin a long argument, and that's no good, no good at all, because he'll start going on about Prim and my mother and everything, and I'll just get confused. So before he can talk, I stop his lips with a kiss. I feel that thing again. The thing I only felt once before. In the cave last year, when I was trying to get Hamish to send us food, I kissed PETA about a thousand times during the games and after, but there was only one kiss that made me feel something stir deep inside. Only one that made me want more. But my head wound started bleeding and he made me lie down. This time, there is nothing but us to interrupt us. And after a few attempts, PETA gives up on talking. The sensation inside me grows warmer and spreads out from my chest, down through my body, out along my arms and legs to the tips of my being. Instead of satisfying me, the kisses have the opposite effect of making my need greater. I thought I was something of an expert on hunger, but this is an entirely new kind. Page 353. I knew, in this moment, that her feelings were evolving, were deepening and pulling her into love, a genuine, romantic love. What will happen when this love is tested in the most cruel ways by the masterminds of the capital? All will be resolved in the next and final book, Mockingjay. If you've made it to the end of this episode, I want to give you the sincerest thank you I spent about two weeks combing through my notes and my brain to write this episode. It took a lot of work and time, and I appreciate that you took time out of your day to listen to my work. There you have it. Most of my thoughts on Suzanne Collins' Catching Fire. Join me next time for episode 6C, Memorable Moments. Let's talk about lit. Thanks for listening. Thank you.